Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Now, I've said this phrase, I don't know how many times as we've gone through our message series on 1st and 2nd Samuel, but I'll say it again because it's kind of the cornerstone of what we're talking about today. And what I mean is the best leaders are shepherds. Shepherds make the best leaders, not kings, not politicians, not rulers. Shepherds make the best leaders. And the reason why shepherds make the best leaders is because rulers, politicians, they tend to rule over while shepherds care for and tend their flock. As you go throughout scripture, you find that this picture of a shepherd is is God's biblical picture of God's ideal leader. You see this word come up over and over and over and over again, shepherd, shepherd, shepherd. I'm looking for a shepherd. God chose David over Saul because Saul Saul was a king and David was a shepherd. David was a man who knew how to care for the flock. And so this, this picture, this paradigm of a shepherd is God's ideal leader. And the shepherd, the reason why it's God's ideal leader is because the shepherd's responsibility is to care for and tend the flock, to feed the flock, to care for God's people. But the question that we, and, and I think a lot of us understand that, but, but we stop right at that point. We know that shepherd's responsibility is to care for the the flock and and feed the flock, but but to what end? Why is the shepherd caring for the flock? Why did shepherds in Israel feed and care for and protect the flock? It was so that they could one day be sacrificed. That's why shepherds care for the flock. So that one day, they could be presented before God as a sacrifice. Now this theme is borrowed by Paul in the New Testament. Paul refers to pastors as shepherds. The Greek word for pastor is the word shepherd. It's one of the things that the local church is supposed to be gifted with. Shepherds that care for the flock. You find this in Ephesians 4, 11, 1 Peter 5, 2. Peter refers to the importance of pastors shepherding the flock. But then the next step of that understanding of the, the paradigm of the shepherd and the sheep, we see that the sheep are being cared for by a shepherd for the purpose of being presented as a living sacrifice. That's Romans 12, 1. Also see it in 1 Peter 2, 5. So all the way back to ancient Israel, all the way forward into New Testament times, there is this biblical picture of leadership, and it is the word shepherd. And it informs the way we're supposed to be thinking about leadership today. It informs 
and gives me my job description here at this church. What is my sole responsibility as the pastor of this church? It is to feed you and care for you and protect you so that you can be presented before a holy God as a living sacrifice. That you will be cared for and protected and fed so that you can then go out and present yourself as a living sacrifice before the Lord so that he can use you for his good purposes. That's my responsibility, that is your responsibility. But this picture has even smaller implications because the picture of a shepherd doesn't just stop and start with the church. It doesn't just start, start and stop with Israel. There was this idea of a shepherd out in the field caring for sheep, and that was the picture that God wanted Israel to understand when they looked at their king. God borrowed this picture so they understood leadership at the governmental level. And I'm convinced that this was borrowed in the New Testament so that local churches could understand the, um, the understanding of a shepherd caring for sheep and how that has its implications on the smallest of levels. I'll get into that in a minute. But the, the argument I wanna make before we get into the text today is that all the way back from the Old Testament and all the way into the New Testament, there is an understanding that the right way to care for God's people is to look at a shepherd and do what he does. And in that paradigm of shepherd, at no time did the sheep exist for the shepherd. The shepherd existed for the sheep. Now this is important because this is David's great failure. When God created the world, he didn't create a shepherd and then say, you know, we should make some animals so this guy has a job. No, he created the, he filled the earth with these animals, these shepherds, and then he said to Adam, I, I, or these sheep, and he said to Adam, I want you to care for them. Shepherding. I want you to look after them, care for them, protect them. Here is a group of people. Here is a group of sheep. Doesn't matter what the group is. They need to be cared for, and we want you to do it. That's why you exist. You exist to care for them. They are not here for you. They don't serve your purposes. You serve them. And that was the great issue that David struggled with. He started off well. He was a good shepherd. But a point came at which he started taking advantage of the sheep. This is what Nathan the prophet said in 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 7. Because you took advantage of another man's sheep, rather than caring for your own, there are going to be consequences. And those consequences are what we're reading about today in 2 Samuel 13, 14, and 15. So let's start off today in 2 Samuel 13, 1 through 5. I gave a disclaimer last week that the, the content uh, in the message this week is a little bit heavy. So you've been warned. 2 Samuel 13, verse 1. This story comes right on the heels of God telling David what he thinks about his sin. There will be consequences. And then 13 starts off and we see those consequences. Verse one, now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's other son, loved her. 
And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. See, she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother. So Jonadab is Amnon's cousin. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? And Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Like, man, my man, that's your sister too, okay? (laughs) Jonadab said to him, here's what you need to do, man. Lie down in your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to you, say to him, oh, let my sister Tamar come and give bread to me to eat and prepare food in my sight that I may see it and I can eat from her hand. Let's pause right there. Now I told you in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 the story of David and Bathsheba. We begin 13 as an introduction into the judgment. But verse one, before we get into the mess of it, we are introduced to three new characters in the story. First, it's Absalom and his sister Tamar. Now Absalom and Tamar were David's children by his wife Maaka. So David had this one wife named Maaka and they had two children, Absalom and Tamar. David had another wife, now he had lots of wives, but he had this other wife named Ahinoam and Ahinoam had a son, so David and Ahinoam had a son, and, this, and their son was Amnon. And Amnon was, their, was David's firstborn, first kid David ever had. So David had a special affinity for this kid, because he was the firstborn. And we're told that Amnon was passionately in love with his half-sister. Now, I use the word love as a joke. This wasn't love. This was unbridled sexual passion unchecked. And the reason why this story is introduced in 13 right after 12 is because the author wants you thinking about the story of David and Bathsheba as you read this. Because what we have is a father who refused to conquer his lust And he has now raised a son who doesn't know how to conquer his lust. That's what's happening. The judgment that fell on David's house is directly connected to David's failures that are perceived and seen in Bathsheba but are so much deeper than that. A father modeling wicked behavior and his oldest son is taking notes. That's what's happening here. David, who is supposed to be the good shepherd over Israel, has now abused the sheep, and his son is standing over here saying, so that's what it means to be a man. That's what it looks like. Okay, so that's how you treat women. 
That's how you rule. That's how you put people in there. That's how you get what you want. Okay. And the passion stirred on the inside of him. This is why I started the story today with the shepherd imagery. Because what you're watching here is David as a shepherd. But not just David as a shepherd. Scripture wants you to zoom out and not just stare at this story, but also look at yourself in the mirror. David is supposed to be a shepherd. I am supposed to be a shepherd. You are supposed to be a shepherd. Remember, I told you at the beginning that God took this picture of a shepherd and said, hey, do you guys understand this relationship? between the shepherd and the sheep and his responsibility and their responsibility, this is what I want leadership to look like. Now apply that across the board. That works in the church, but it also works in your house. It works in your house, but it also works in your career. It works in the classroom. It's supposed to work in politics. It's supposed to work for God's people in any area that we hold leadership. And I don't care how much leadership you hold. I don't care if, if you've got a million people following you or two little kids that have your last name and those are the only people on planet Earth that know you exist. You are a shepherd and your responsibility is to be modeling for the sheep the way they're supposed to be acting. That's how you care for them. That's how you provide for them. That's how you feed them. By modeling, by giving them God's word, by affirming them, by disciplining them, by protecting them. This is what I want you thinking as we go through the story. Because what we have here is a shepherd over Israel who has overstepped his bounds and the sheep that he's responsible for, his own children, are taking notes on the way he acts and they're repeating his failures. Now we don't know if Amnon would have struggled at all with his passions if David had kept his in check, but I can tell you this, chances would have been much higher if the shepherd would have modeled for the sheep what God's expectations were rather than modeling for the sheep unbridled passions. So the question you have to ask yourself as you go through this is, what am I modeling for the sheep under my care? Do you wanna know why we have so many dysfunctional churches in America? It's because we have dysfunctional pastors and dysfunctional elders and dysfunctional boards. The issue flows from the top down because shepherds are supposed to be caring for the sheep. And we look at, we look at the numbers that like Barna puts out, wow. I can't believe how many people are leaving the church. I can, I believe it, I totally believe it. Because we have a leadership issue. What we have is Babylon, the dragon, telling us how we're supposed to lead. And it comes in the form of um, uh, startups, it comes in the form of uh, politician, it comes in the form of celebrity. And so what you have is leaders looking out in the world trying to figure out how should I be a pastor? How should I lead this congregation or this organization? And the dragon has provided no shortage of things that you could try. Man, why don't you try to lead like a celebrity? 
Why don't you try to lead like a politician? Why don't you try to lead like a professor or a president? No, Scripture has one way leadership is supposed to look, and it is shepherd. That's what leadership looks like, caring for the sheep, feeding the sheep for the purpose of presenting them before a holy God as a living sacrifice. But all this stuff starts eking in. And I'm talking about the church because it's easy for me to talk about because I'm a pastor. But as you start drilling down, this doesn't just impact me, it impacts you as well. You have to consider who is teaching you how to be a man? Who is teaching you how to be a father? Who is teaching you how to be a mom? Is it some woman you've never met before, but has 100,000 followers on Instagram because she's got her own little multi-level marketing thing going on, and you've been sucked into it, and you can't help but just look at her life and look at the way she raises her kids and look at all these trips she's doing, and she is discipling you in the way that you're supposed to be leading your family? Are you looking at, uh, at the internet or social media more than you're looking at Scripture telling you, no, no, you're supposed to shepherd those kids. You're supposed to love those kids. No, no, you're too busy over here looking at this other person saying you can have everything in life. Go ahead and do everything you want to do. And if your kids get in your way, pay somebody else to look after them. It stings, but it's true because the sheep under our care need us to lead the way God wants us to lead, not the way the world wants us to lead. And the repercussions are terrible because the sheep are taking notes. As we get into verse six, we see that David, he seemed to have some sense of his responsibility to care for the sheep under his care because he had his daughters sequestered. He had these virgin daughters and no one could get to them. That was one of the frustrations Amnon had. He wanted to get to his sister, but he couldn't because David had put up boundaries and guardrails. They wore these long robes. They hung out on a different side of the castle. You couldn't get to them. And so one of Amnon's cousins comes and has this plan to help Amnon fulfill his lust and the plan worked. Amnon hatches the plan, gets his dad involved. His dad says, okay, we can send your sister in to take care of you. She'll make you a little meal, a little, nice little chicken soup situation. You just lay there in bed. You don't do anything, Amnon. She'll come and take care of you. She comes in. She finishes the meal. Amnon ca ca casts everybody out of the room, locks the door. His sister comes near to him. He seizes her. He takes advantage of her, and he rapes her. And immediately we're told from Scripture that the hatred that he had for her was even greater than the love that he had for her. And as soon as he was done, he immediately cast her out. Get out of my sight. He locked the door behind her. He commanded his servants, kick her out of my castle and don't let her back in. And we find her wandering through the, through the streets. She goes away in tears. She has ashes on her head. She rips her virgin robe, and everyone can see what has happened. And Absalom, her brother, finds her, takes her in, and she lives with Absalom as a desolate woman for the rest of her life. And we're told in verse 21 that when David heard this, he was angry, but he did nothing. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, our English translation comes from the Hebrew 
The verse is when David heard all these things, he was angry. That's it, that's all the translation. But in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is actually the oldest, oldest version of the Old Testament that we have, it's about a thousand years earlier or older than the uh, oldest Hebrew uh, um, translation that we have. There's another little section in there. It says in the Septuagint that David heard this and he was angry, but David did not punish Amnon because he loved him because he was his firstborn. That's why David didn't punish him, because he was his firstborn. You remember back in 2 Samuel 8, 15, where we're told that David was known among the nations because he ruled with justice and equity? Not for his own family. He's got justice and equity. We're gonna do the right thing, and if somebody doesn't do the right thing, we're gonna fix it. That goes for everybody in this kingdom except for my own daughter. And who's taking notes? Absalom. Absalom is watching his dad fail at shepherding his own family. Let's pick up the story in verse 23. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shearers at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. Now, sheep shearers, this is a festival time. This is a big party time. When it's time to shear the sheep, you gather everybody together and you have a big party. Lots of food, lots of drinking, lots of music, lots of dancing. It's a big festival because God has provided. You're pulling in all the, the sheep, you're shearing them. It's a good time. You need lots of hands, so everybody comes and participates. So Absalom, after two years, he's been stewing, and he decides to throw a party. Verse 24, Absalom came to the king, David, and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go out with your servant. And the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. But he pressed him, and he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Look, son, we're not, the whole family's not going to come over to your house for a party. But... God bless you for all God's done. Verse 26, and Absalom said, well, okay, if everybody doesn't come, please at, let, at least let my brother Amnon go with us. And then David said, why should he go with you? David knows something's up. He knows these two brothers are at odds because he knows Tamar's been living with Absalom and he knows what Amnon did. But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. So then Amnon commanded his servants, look, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, I want you to kill him. Now do not fear, for I have not commanded you, have I not commanded you, be courageous and be vigilant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded, and all the king's sons rose and each mounted his mule and fled. All right, let's reflect. Two years later, Absalom has been planning his revenge. It's not justice, it's murder. He's not putting together a plan to bring justice to his sister. He has not consulted the king. This is murder. This is one son killing another son with the sword. Can you see what the author is showing us in this story? He wants you to consider 
not just the consequences of our personal sin, but the things that your actions teach to the little sheep under your care. What has Absalom learned from his father that you solve problems with a sword? He's got one son who doesn't know how to control his own sexual urges because he learned that from his dad. And he's got another son who doesn't know how to control his anger because he learned that from his dad. You solve problems with the sword. And this is what happens in this story. The author wants you to consider what, what, what are you teaching the sheep under your care? In this story, after Amnon gets every, or after Absalom gets all of his brothers together at the party, he tells his servants, I want you to get my brother drunk and I want you to kill him. Well, the moment he gives the order and Amnon is killed, all of the brothers go wild. Everyone's freaking out because they think Absalom is going to kill everybody. So we're told everyone jumps on their donkey and they all run in different directions. And we're told that Absalom jumps on his donkey and he runs back to his grandpa's house. And he hides over in this land. Let me go ahead and show you a map if you put that up. The party scatters. Absalom goes to his uh, grandpa's town up in Jeshur. So this was down around in Jerusalem, down near the Dead Sea. All of the brothers scatter. They head back home, and Absalom heads up to his grandpa's house up in Jeshur, up in the Sea of Galilee. Well, David is freaking out because he doesn't know what happened. Did Absalom kill all of my sons? That's the first news that he hears. But eventually hears the news that David has, or that his son Absalom has only killed Amnon. Well, David, he mourns his son Amnon. He's angry at Absalom for what he did, but Absalom has moved away and they don't have any communication anymore and they're just gonna leave it at that. But there is some sense that David does wish his family was back together and he doesn't know how to handle that. So as we enter into chapter 14, this guy named Joab steps on the scene. Joab is the head of David's army. He's the head commander. And three years have passed, and Joab has decided enough time has passed. It's time to bring Absalom home. How am I going to do this? So here's what Joab's plan is. I'm going to go hire a wise woman from Tekoa, a little town down the street. We're going to dress her up in some shoddy clothes, make her look kind of roughed up, like she's just a woman who's got no means. She's in a wise, wealthy woman. She's just this poor woman. And we're gonna bring her before David because David's a sucker for women and also women in distress. And she's gonna present a story to David. It's very much like chapter 12 where Nathan brings the word of the Lord to David in the form of a parable. Except this isn't the word of the Lord. This is Joab scheming. The whole chapter 14 is weird. It lands so strange. Because what happens is this woman comes in before David and she's covering him in flattery. Oh, David, you're so wise. You're the greatest king we've ever had. You're like an angel of God. 
I have a story for you. I need you to get in, in, in the middle of my family affairs. See, what happened is my husband's gone. I've only got two sons. One son got angry at the other son and killed him. And now the one son who is alive is out in hiding. And everyone wants revenge on him and justice. But he's out in hiding. And all I want is my son home. And David's heart is moved. And he says, all right, tell that son it's time to come home and he will have the king's protection. And the lady flips the story, just like Nathan, and says, ah, David, basically you're being a hypocrite. How could you have such compassion on my son and not have the same compassion on your son that has been gone from your eyes for three years? Now David, at this moment, David's like, all right, I see you. I see what you're doing, you sneaky little woman. Did Joab put you up to this? And she says, oh, you're so wise. You're so like an angel of God. You're so smart, David. Yes, it was Joab. So David relents and eventually brings Absalom home. But the reason why 14 is so weird is because it seems at the beginning that Joab is doing this out of the kindness of his own heart. Unless you remember a story from 2 Samuel chapter 3, verses 26 to 30. See, this is why you got to read the story all together. If you just cherry pick these verses, you don't know the context. See, Joab killed a man named Abner. You remember that? You remember that because we went through it. Joab was filled with anger because Abner had killed his brother. So Joab got revenge by murdering this guy in the middle of the night after this guy had just defected from Saul's kingdom over to David's. He was one of David's servants, and Joab killed him in the middle of the night. And up until this point, there was, there was animosity between Joab and David. So Joab isn't doing this because, oh man, Absalom's my buddy and I want him home. No, Joab's doing this because he's self-serving. This story reveals to David the foolishness of harboring bitterness against somebody who took out somebody else in anger. So now Joab, he's off the hook a little bit. That's why he's doing it. And he hires this woman to come and tell this lie in order to get David to open his eyes. This isn't God opening David's eyes. This is manipulation at David's servant's level. So why is this story in here? What is the point of this? It drives back to what we talked about at the beginning. It's supposed to reveal to us another one of David's failures. David is willing to give an audience to a perfect stranger who is lying to his face, but he will not meet his own son. Mm. That stings when you start thinking about the implications of some of the people that you know, maybe even yourself, who have such compassion and mercy for people in ministry who are hurting or have failed. You've got such grace for people in the church, but you don't have grace for people in your, in your family. Ooh, they pay the ultimate price. You, you won't talk to them. That's a different standard. You spend so much time caring for the people in God's church. But what about the little sheep in your own home who are watching and taking notes? Let's go to verse 21 in chapter 14. The king said to Joab, behold, now I grant you this. Go back and get the young man Absalom. Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. Joab said, today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight. 
My lord, the king, is that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Jeshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. So you can come home, but you can't see your dad. Now in all Israel, This is such a fascinating turn. Now in all Israel, no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, because it was heavy on his head, he would cut it, and the weight of the hair of his head would be 200 shekels. That is five pounds. Ladies, that's a lot of body, isn't it? That's a lot of fullness. Five pounds in a year? Man. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. Did you see that? He named his daughter after his sister that was violated. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming to the king's presence. Two years in the same town as your dad and not getting to see him. Then Absalom sent forth Joab to send him to the king. So Absalom's had enough of this. He wants to see the king. He sends for Joab, but Joab would not come to him. See, I told you, Joab is self-serving. He doesn't care that Absalom's home. He just wanted his own debt to be paid. Now Absalom's trying to get a hold of Joab. Joab's like, oh, uh, sorry, wrong number. Who is this? And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. So this is what Joab did. He said, or that Absalom said, he said to his servants, you see Joab's field next to mine? He has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field of Joab on fire. And then Joab rose and went to Absalom at his house and said, why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom said, well, I sent word to you. Come here that I may send you to the king and ask, but, wh- but why have I come from Geshur? But uh, it would be better for me to, to be there and still, now therefore let me go into the presence of the king. If there is guilt in me, let him be put. But you wouldn't answer. I, I, I called, but you wouldn't answer. All I want is to see my dad. There's no point in me being here. I've been here, it's been five years since I've seen my dad. Why doesn't he want to see me? And Joab went to the king and told him, So the king summoned Absalom. He came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. So Absalom is home, but David refuses to see him. And we're supposed to see the consequences of his sin. You're supposed to reflect on everything you've learned as you go through the story. And that's one of the things that we do when we read the Bible. We, we read it and we're so sucked into the verse and we're confused about the language and we're confused about the names and we're confused about the, the locations that we, we're not familiar enough with the text that we don't reflect as we go along. We have now been introduced to a son who can't control his own sexual desires. We've been introduced to a son that can't control his own anger. We've been, and, and all of this is connected to a dad who refuses to execute justice and equity over his own family. He has time to speak to a random woman, but not his own kid who lives just down the road from him. And all of this is building to stew inside of Absalom. Absalom is taking notes and he has come to the place where he thinks he could be a better king than David. My dad's a failure. Would that seed have even taken root if David had spent time with his son? 
had cared for him, had loved him in the way that he cared for Israel. So what you have here is Absalom starting to plot to overthrow his father, and the introductions to that are found in verse 24. This is so fascinating, this pivot. We're told that Absalom doesn't come into the presence of the king because David won't see him, and then in verse 25, we're told immediately, here's a description of Absalom, and it is shockingly similar to Saul. Oh no. And as a reader, you're going through this like, oh no, David, what have you done? You have created a Saul 2.0. You did this, David, because you wouldn't shepherd your own family. The repercussions, now these are connected to the, these are the judgments God is bringing on David. But these aren't judgments that God is just like picking out of nowhere. All right, you want to go with Bathsheba? Then, then your, your sons are going to betray you. No, they're connected. The judgment God gives you is because of the sins that you committed. These aren't abstract. These aren't out of nowhere. You live this way, it has consequences. And it will impact your children because these little sheep you're supposed to be caring for, they're taking notes. Now eventually David did see Absalom, but things aren't right, something's brewing. Absalom is back in town, but man, we get into the beginning of 15, and he's talking and acting like a king. We're told he's hired 50 men to run in front of him just to go down to the grocery store. Everywhere he goes, people are shouting his name. He's taking time out of his schedule to hide at the gates of the city and make himself available for anyone who wants to bring a case before the king. And he always makes sure that he mentions, ah, man, you really have a case here. It's a shame that the king hasn't set anybody aside to hear your case. But I will. I'm here for you. Tell me your issues. I'll help you out. And in no time, just a few short years, he has positioned himself so that all of Israel, their heart has turned towards Absalom, the new Saul. And people are despising David. Absalom makes his play. He says he wants to go to Hebron and make this sacrifice, but at the sacrifice, he makes this play. He rallies his support, and he finds that all of Israel is with him. And news gets back to David that your son wants to overthrow your kingdom. Pick up the story in 2 Samuel 15, verse 13. A messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape from us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us Quickly bring down ruin upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. The king went out and all his household after him. The king left 10 concubines to keep the house and the king went out and all the people after him and they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him, all the Cheshire, che, excuse me, Cherethites and all the Pelethites and the 600 Gittites who followed after him from Gath. Oh, wow. 
Gath's a Philistine city. So David even has Philistines following him. Then the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king. You're a foreigner and also an exile from your home, and you only came yesterday. You've been with me one day. Shall I make you today wander after with us in the wilderness? Since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you. And may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king and said, as the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, wherever for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, then go on, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all of his men and the little ones who were with him. Let's pause there because David has heard news that Absalom is coming for him and he leaves the city. And he's got hundreds of people following him. As if you finish the story, verses 23 through 37, you see that there's no shortage of people who are wanting to follow David out of town. He sends some of them back into Jerusalem as spies, but he's got hundreds of people following him. There's just one problem. Out of the hundreds of followers following David, there's one person that's missing. His own son. Absalom isn't following him. And that's the pain, isn't it? That you can give yourself to something so great and lose the things that matter the most. This is why I started this message today with a picture of a shepherd. The shepherd is our biblical example of leadership. And I'm speaking now to the fathers in this room. As a shepherd, you should care for your children and prepare them to be ready to meet Christ. Dads, that is your job as the shepherd over your home. Care for those kids. Watch after their souls. Look, you gotta pay attention to what they're watching. You have to pay attention to who they're hanging around. You gotta watch the words that are coming out of their mouth because they'll reveal who they've been hanging out with. What did you say? Where did that come from? Who have you been hanging out with? There was a time when that wasn't nosy. That's being a parent. But now, oh no, you've got to give them space. You can't have their phone. You can't look. You're violating their privacy. Look, kids don't have privacy. They need you to read their texts. Ooh, some of you are like, uh-uh. <laughs> no. Yes. You need your parents to read your texts because you are not old enough to understand what restraint is and you will say stupid things and go stupid places and do stupid things. You need to see the pictures that your kids are sharing with people. You need to hold off social media as long as possible because it will eat them alive. Look, we grew up in an age where none of this was a thing. When you left school, you left that group. They weren't under your influence. There was a time when you left that party and you went home, there wasn't somebody in your ear telling you where you're supposed to be thinking, where you're supposed to be going. But not anymore. Now the haunting is everywhere. It's every moment of every day. And all, you ha- all your kids have to do is open their phones and there is no shortage of somebody telling them what they're supposed to think about themselves, 
what they're supposed to be sending about themselves, what they're supposed to be, t- who they are, how they're supposed to be talking about themselves, and their only line of defense is the shepherd watching after their soul. And I've heard it, oh, I don't understand technology, not an excuse. I don't know what they're into, not an excuse. I love you, but not an excuse. You are the shepherd, they are the sheep. You have to care for them and present them before Christ. Not just fathers, husbands. Your responsibility is to care for and love your wife so that one day she will be ready to be presented before a holy God. There is one day where you're gonna be standing in heaven with your kids and your wife and you're gonna be saying, see, I told you it was all worth it. Isn't this amazing? You need that picture in your head. One day, your kids are going to be standing before a holy God, and then you are too, and God's going to be like, did you, do, did, you, did you shepherd them? Did you care for them? Did you love your wife like Christ loved the church? No, no, no. I loved her like I watched some celebrity love his wife. Ooh, I'm telling you, you don't want that on judgment day. Shepherds, that's how you're supposed to be thinking about leadership. Fathers, shepherd your kids. Husbands, shepherd your wives. Wives, shepherd your homes. Care for, look after your kids. Care for, look after your home. Every single person in here has been given some little pasture to care for. Pastors, you're supposed to be shepherding the sheep so that they can be presented before a holy God. Every form of leadership is supposed to be viewed through the lens of shepherding. And I don't care if you've just got one little sheep you're caring for, you will, you will be held accountable before a holy God for how you shepherded that little sheep. Too much is given, much is required. Some of you will be, you've been given a, a huge pasture and lots of sheep to look after. You better be spending your time caring for those sheep and not looking over your shoulder wishing that you were over there in that pasture. Gosh, the grass is greener over there. Quit looking over there, that's sin. To covet what someone else has and to, to let it rob you of your ability to care for the thing God has given you, that's sin. Stop coveting other pastures, other sheeps, other sheep, other jobs. Your sole responsibility is to care for the little pasture God has given you. And David was a shepherd and he should have cared for Israel. This has massive consequences because it stands as a warning to us. These three chapters show us what is on the line. Your wife, your kids, your family, your friends, your job, your neighborhood, whatever pasture that God has given you to care for, you had better care for it because if you don't, those sheep are taking notes and the consequences will be greater than you can even imagine. Let this sit on your shoulders like a heavy weight because it is. You have been given a great, great responsibility. Please stop looking at it like a burden. Hear me. Marriage is no burden. Children are no burden. Church is no burden. Leadership is no burden. It is a gift from a holy God. 
But you have been told by the world that it is robbing you of living your best life. It is robbing you of the joy that you really could be experiencing having out there. And I'm telling you, it's a lie from the pit of hell. Satan talks like that. The word of God is clear. You are a shepherd over a very specific pasture and very specific sheep. And those sheep take notes if you're not doing your job. So take your job seriously. Stop paying somebody else to do it. Do it yourself. Amen? Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.